If you're wondering where to go to discover new music, check out In Our Headphones, the latest podcast from listener-powered KEXP. In Our Headphones brings you recommendations and insights every week, straight from KEXP DJs. And we're your hosts. I'm Isabel Kalili. And I'm Janice Headley. Join us for this never-ending journey of music discovery from KEXP and the NPR Network. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Just search KEXP. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today's show is about copyright and music. Coming up in five minutes, we'll hear from a coder and a lawyer who developed an algorithm that created nearly 70 billion melodies. And they're putting the melodies that haven't been used so far in the public domain to prevent more copyright infringement cases against musicians. If somebody steals just the mere melody alone, not the ache of the voice, not the bass drum hit, not the guitar solo that we love, but just the melody, maybe we should think about whether that should be stored with one person for their life plus 95 years, and nobody else can use that thing. But first, we'll hear about a program that is going to make it easier for musicians to use samples in their music without fear of copyright infringement. The Library of Congress is about to launch a tool this summer that would make its massive audio collection available in the public domain for DJs, hip-hop artists, and others to sample in their music for free. The project is called Citizen DJ. It's led by the Library of Congress's innovator-in-residence, Brian Fu. He says this idea has been in his head since he was a teenager. You know, I was a breakdancer in the 90s and the 2000s, so I've always had an interest in hip-hop music, hip-hop culture, and kind of the idea of a DJ who, uh, you know, is this kind of collector of sounds, especially in the early days of hip-hop. Um, and, the, and the DJ would be, you know, digging through crates in the back of... Um, you know, thrift shops and record stores and looking for, you know, really, you know, obscure sounds that that they can transform into new music. So that was kind of the basis of this project where, um, you know, it kind of led me to ask, you know, what is in our collective crate, you know, as a, um, you know, as a citizen of the United States, um, you know, what is the shared crate of sounds that we can use for free? without any special permission um, and for, you know, creative reuse. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of the, the, the basis of this project. The Library of Congress's audio collection spans back for more than 100 years. It includes everything from speeches and interviews to music and movies. Fu says he's found some gems along the way. I've been listening to, um, like, interviews of, you know, music legends from, you know, like B.B. King or David Bowie. Some of like the first sounds of the the wax cylinders uh, from the Edison collections, through to you know field recordings and and government film. I mean, it's 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 really a bit overwhelming. Because the collection is so overwhelming, Fu, who's also a computer scientist, has organized the library into different categories, from music to film, interviews, sketches, and more. He then created a visual grid for each category. So the grid kind of looks like a pixelated color wheel. Each pixel itself is a sound. And as the pixels change colors, the types of sounds change. Here's Fu describing how it works in a video tutorial where he's moving his mouse around the color grid. So I'm going to kind of just give you a sense of what's in here. (laughs) 
So right now I'm kind of just scrubbing through uh, a few thousand audio clips that are, you know, under a second long. And it kind of gives you a very broad um, sense of what is in this collection sonically. Uh, the way these clips are laid out is uh, the clips that are closer to each other should sound similar and the color reinforces that. So I can play what's in the corner here. Sounds like opera. Um, and in the opposite corner, sounds like piano and xylophone. Um, and as I'm scrubbing through, you can actually see where the particular sound comes from. So once I find an interesting sound, I could hear it in context. Real Christmas cheer. And I can also view it on the library's website. The Library of Congress's Citizen DJ tool also has a feature where you can create a remix with your fountain sound right on their site. You can also download all these sounds and use them in your own editing program. I really just hope there's a lot of new music made. Um, everything from, you know, just students or amateur musicians making new music all the way through, you know, Kanye West or, or, or whoever else is able to just take these sounds and make something new with it. Yeah, my dream is that a whole, a whole new generation of musicians are able to kind of make new sounds uh, that would hopefully be able to make more visible some of the amazing things that the library has in their collections. Fu's goal is to create an entire album based out of found sounds from the Library of Congress's website. He's started on one track already. It's based off of this old recording called Old Pal. And he remixed it into this original track. You can check out the Citizen DJ tool on the Library of Congress's website. It's still in the testing phase, and Fu is looking for feedback. It'll be fully up and running later this summer. This is Sound and Vision. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. There have been a lot of lawsuits over copyright in the music industry in recent years. George Harrison was fined hundreds of thousands of dollars because of his song, My Sweet Lord. Because it was too similar to the song, He's So Fine. Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams had to pay $5 million for their song, Blurred Lines. 
because it was too similar to Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. And recently, Katy Perry was ordered to pay nearly $3 million because of her song Dark Horse. Make me was similar to the Christian group Flame song Joyful Noise. Similar cases have come up with many, many other artists. In these cases, the big question is, did the artist purposely take a melody from another artist or was it on accident? That also brings the question, how many melodies can we actually have? Will we come to the point in music history where we are bound to repeat melodies? Have we run out of melodies? For Damien Real and Noah Rubin, the answer is yes. Real is a lawyer who has worked on copyright, and Rubin is a coder. They have worked together to create an algorithm that basically has come up with every melody that exists. They join me now to talk about their project and how it could impact the music industry. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. So explain, how does this program work? The program uh, started as an idea where I thought uh, when people hack a password, one way to do that is to use a computer to quickly guess AAAA, AAB, AAC, until it ultimately hits your password. That's called brute forcing. So I thought maybe we could do that with music. Maybe we could say do-do-do-do, do-do-do-re, do-do-do-me, and then just mathematically exhaust every melody that's ever been and ever can be. Um, so really, that's. Uh, I thought, Noah, do you think you could brute force music uh, melodies? Uh, and he said, uh, <laughs> he said yes. Uh, and I'll let Noah talk a little bit more about the details of how the program works. Yeah. So when when Damien asked me, you know, you think we could do this? I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. So so on a high level, the way the program works is you give it a set of parameters. So you tell it how many different pitches you want it to cover. And then you tell it the length of the melodies that you want it to generate. So it could be the major keys in middle C. And then you say, okay, I want length 10 melodies or length 12. And then it will, in an iterative fashion, go about generating MIDI files containing every single one of the possible melodies with those combination of pitches. That's awesome. So you, you created this program. And then ultimately, how many melodies did you come up with? Hmm. Uh, you know, we've we've continually created more and more melodies, uh, and so uh, so uh, of course the one that I talked about in my uh, TEDx talk, uh, we talked about do re mi fa sol la ti do, so that's eight pitches up, and then the length that Noah was talking about, we did twelve across, and the math on that is eight to the twelfth power, so that's about sixty-eight billion uh, melodies. Um, but that was just the major side, major scale. Uh, we also did the minor scale, so that's another 68 billion. Uh, we also did uh, the chromatic, so not just the white uh, white keys, but also the black keys on the on the keyboard. It's a 12 tone chromatic scale. So adding the top tonic, that's 13. So that's uh, we the one that we created was 13 to the 10th power. 
uh, which is a lot. And then we also um, are currently doing another data set too, uh, which is going to be more than that. So uh, to answer your question, uh, we generate lots and lots of melodies. Lots of them. And then have you figured out, I mean, I, I had watched your TED Talk where you basically have like, you know, a grid of, 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 of kind of like red squares and green squares. The red squares are all of the melodies that already exist. And the green squares are ones that haven't existed yet. And when you look at it or this idea how many melodies do you think that we've filled in the grid already? Like, are we almost at capacity of how many melodies we can make? That's that's really uh, literally a million dollar question, <laughs> and and uh, I don't think anybody really knows the um, the difficulty with finding uh, the red square versus the green square is figuring out number one what songs are currently in copyright. Because if something has uh, was, say, Beethoven, uh, that was at one point copyrighted, but it has reached the public domain. So uh, in addition to the red square currently copyrighted, green square uh, in my TED Talk, which is not red, <laughs> there's also a, now a third uh, one that we've talked about uh, after the, my TED Talk of that, the gray square. The gray square is the Beethoven melody that da, 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 that used to be copyrighted, but isn't copyrighted anymore. It's in the public domain. So um, that's, to your question, you know, how, how many do we have left? Um, it would be really interesting to superimpose the red melodies uh, and then show the green melodies and then show the gray melodies and see how many currently copyrighted works um, are overlapped by the public domain pieces like Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, et cetera. Yeah, that's interesting. So ultimately, you know, you've created this program, you've come up with, you know, billions of melodies. How will having this information and data ultimately help artists? We think that uh, at least our hope is that we'll get lawyers and judges and juries to think differently about what the data set is. How many melodies are there? Uh, I think if you're not a musician, you might think, well, the number of melodies is infinite. There are an unlimited number of melodies that one can think of. So when they see, uh, you know, song one song sounding almost exactly like a different song, they, in their um, their opinion, they think, well, of course they copy because look at how similar they sound. Um, there's no way that it could sound so similar if they didn't copy it. Um, what we would like to do with our project is to maybe make them think twice about that. Maybe think, you know, maybe the result of two people creating a similar sounding s song is not because person B copied person A, but maybe it's just because the constraint of the genre that there are only so many notes and uh, person B accidentally stepped on the same melody that person A may have stepped in. And that's even more plausible and possible if you take into consideration genre. If you think about blues, for example, there are only, you know, there's a blues progression uh, that everybody uses the same blues progression. So if you use the blues progression, uh, the number of melodies that fall within that are way smaller than Noah and I created in our All the Music data set. Um, so when you take into consideration genre, um, the number of notes that one can make for their melodies is much, much smaller. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the copyright cases that I mentioned kind of in the intro, a lot of these cases, again, the argument was, did this artist purposefully copy this other melody? You know, and again, it can be argued like, you know, how, how do you even prove that? You know, can you prove that? Um, so having this information, I mean, I mean, my other question is, you know, what about artists that do intentionally copy someone else's work? You know, does this program 
help or, or hurt them? This is something that people bring up often. You know, if you have your way, Damien and Noah, um, then maybe the melody is not copyrightable. And that's largely what we're saying is that melody is such a building block of music. Uh, maybe you should not protect melody but protect other things, you know, protect melody plus lyrics, for example. And think about the entirety of a song isn't just melody. It's melody plus lyrics, plus chords, plus instrumentation, plus all the other things that make a song a song. And tease out and parse out what makes people love a song. Is it the way that the ache of the voice happens or the, you know, the guitar lick uh, along with the, uh, the, you know, dynamic shifts and uh, the big, you know, bass drum hits and uh, all these things are what make people love songs. Um, very rarely is the thing that people care about the sequence of pitches, the mere melody. Um, so maybe we should think about if somebody steals just the mere melody alone, not the ache of the voice, not the bass drum hit, not the guitar solo that we love, but just the melody, um, maybe we should think about whether that should be stored with one person for their life for plus 95 years, and nobody else can use that thing. Maybe melodies are just facts, that if somebody steals that fact, it's not going to be a big deal because people will love their song as much as they love your song, and they'll love that for different reasons. I'm talking with attorney Damian Reel, along with coder Noah Rubin, about their project to track every melody that exists in order to help musicians being sued for copyright infringement. And I should also mention that you also intend to put all these melodies you created through your algorithm into the public domain. So if an artist in the future does get sued for using a melody, they can go to your database and say that the melody was actually in the public domain. So, Damien, you have said in your TED Talk that the copyright system is broken and needs fixing. Ultimately, what would you like to see change in the copyright system and how we approach these issues? Sure. Um, I, I would like to see, uh, you know, the refrain of my TEDx talk was melody equals math. We'd like the law to maybe think of melodies as facts that in and of themselves are not copyrightable, but in the context of the entire song, uh, the you know the chords plus the melodies plus the lyrics plus all the other things um, in the context of the entire song maybe it's copyrightable uh, but the individual component the melody would not be. So I mean for both of you when you see these cases like the Dark Horse song or Tom Betty, Petty versus Sam Smith or Lana Del Rey versus Radiohead what is your reaction when you see these copyright cases where they're going after a very specific melody or portion of a song and you know fighting for you know, billions of dollars in some case, or, you know, a billion dollars, lots of money. What is your reaction when you see these cases come up in the news? Noah, you want to take this one first? Yeah, I can tell you that uh, a little over a year ago, I didn't have much reaction other than oh, that doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> uh, but my reaction, my reaction now is twofold. One, um, I, I think it should be thrown out most of the time at the outset if it really is just about the melody. And, and second, um, I'm always curious to hear what the arguments are from this side, uh, from the, the plaintiff, right, suing the other person. It's always interesting to hear someone make an argument about why they think they have proof that someone else copied their melody, right? Like in the Dark Horse case, I think that's a pretty tough argument to, that they made. But it gets to this issue of George Harrison and the, the subliminal copying, I think a lot of times the arguments fall short of more than likely someone else copied the melody. 
Yeah, because that's always the question that comes to my mind. Like, how can we be responsible for like something that we hear and and get stuck in our brain, like subconsciously? Like, how, how does anyone control that? Like, accidentally take a melody. And and that's exactly right. And as a lawyer who litigated, I, I thought if I were to, uh, we'll say Beth is the person alleged to have copied Adam, right? <laughs> so Beth, uh, so say Beth heard Adam's song, uh, you know, twenty years ago, um, under the George Harrison precedent the judge will say, okay, Beth, you need to prove that you've never heard Adam's song. And how does Beth do that? If I were defending Beth, how could Beth prove a negative? And under philosophy, it's impossible to prove a negative. That is, that is an impossibility. Because how is Beth ever going to say, I never heard that song playing over the loudspeaker while I was walking through the grocery store? Right? It's impossible to prove you've never heard something. So really, uh, under the current state of the law, Beth will lose nearly 100% of the time. So really what Noah and I are trying to do is to give, give Beth a fighting chance to be able to say she has never heard the song before, or even if she did hear the song maybe 20 years ago, uh, she wasn't thinking about that song when Beth made her current song. Um, if melody equals math equals fact equals uncopyrightable, Beth maybe stands a chance. So what comes next for this project? You know, you've, you've put together this whole database with billions of melodies um, with the hopes of maybe one day putting it in the public domain so people don't get, you know, gouged with copyright cases. So what comes next with this project? Do you have any future plans? Uh, I can start and Noah can jump in. The, uh, we do. We're currently building a data set that expands upon our current data set, uh, the, the data sets we've had, uh, to go beyond just an octave. So we're going to go uh, the G below middle C up to the E above the, uh, the C5. Um, so we're doing more notes and we're also including rhythm. A big complaint we've heard from people saying, you know, you're just doing quarter notes, but that's not enough. We need to do rhythm too. So what we're doing is we're incorporating rhythm plus an, uh, beyond a single octave to make uh, an even larger data set to further exhaust the finite possibilities. So Noah, I'd, I'd defer to you on other things that we're going to be doing in the future. So definitely what Damien said, we also heard uh, feedback from some people that the data sets we've produced are large. And some people don't have the bandwidth to download the entire data set. So one thing we want to do to make it more accessible to people is have like a simple web app where people can put in, for example, a melody of their favorite song or whatever it may be. And we can show them, you know, where it shows up in our data set and how many times. So, for example, we someone had a, a question for us recently, like how many times does a Dark Horse melody show up in your data set? I thought that was an interesting problem. So we came up with a way to calculate how many times that melody shows up in our data set. And so the, the plan is to essentially make that into a web app and show people that how common melodies truly are. And do you have that answer yet? Do you know how often the Dark Horse melody actually comes up? Yeah, so according to the formula we came up with, it's 8,192 times. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Wow. And, and that goes to show uh, how the shorter the melody, the more common it is and the easier it is to step on uh, another melody. So we, uh, you know, I was describing our data set is do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. That's eight to the 12, uh, length 12. But if you have, uh, for example, the um, George Harrison case is, um, da, da, da. so there's three pitches there. And then uh, there's only five, length five. So three to the five is only 243. There's only 243 three-pitch, five-note melodies that have ever existed since the beginning of time. So, you know, there are tens of millions of songs up, uh, uploaded each year to SoundCloud. 
And so if you have a three pitch melody, there are only 243 of those. What are the odds of accidentally stepping on those 243? Pretty damn high. That was my conversation with attorney Damien Reel and coder Noah Rubin, who are on a quest to create every melody in the world and put it in the public domain. Well, that was Sound and Vision. Here's a data set I'd like your help with. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Podcast sites actually look at that data to determine which podcast they highlight so other people know that the podcast exists. It's a beautiful thing. So you can do that, again, by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It only takes a minute of your time. And then if you want to go the extra mile, you can give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll chat more on Thursday.